Welcome to the FOI Equip podcast, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Katolka. You know, the scriptures tell the story of God's chosen people and his plan to bring salvation to the whole world through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Come see why it matters that God would choose an ancient people to bring a timeless hope to a lost and broken world. Now, listen, I want to encourage you to go to foiequip.org to sign up to be on our mailing list. You're going to receive vital information on how you can join our free live online FOI Equip classes. Now get ready. Join our expert staff on the FOI Equip podcast as we teach the scriptures, unravel the colorful world of Jewish culture and customs, reveal God's prophetic plan, and so much more. Now enjoy this teaching from FOI Equip. Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to class number two on Messianic Prophecies. We're really excited that you're here. Let me move this forward. There we go. We're on lesson two, and we're going to look at the reason Jesus came prophetically, and then we're going to move on from there to uh, to see more about why he came and the purpose that he had for, for fulfilling these prophecies. And uh, we should be able to get to Isaiah 53 in a little bit. And then we're going to look at the reality of his coming. So we're ready to begin. And uh, let me just start here. The reason Jesus came to fulfill the promises that he made to the Jewish forefathers and patriarchs. We go all the way back in the scriptures. I think we're all familiar with Genesis 3.15. God promised that he was going to send someone who was going to crush the head of the serpent. That serpent, we know, was Satan. God promised he was going to do that. As we move through Genesis, we see that the next uh, event that that really comes into play is going to be that the seed of the woman would come through a descendant of Noah's son, Shem, and then Shem's son, Abraham, and Abraham's son, Isaac, Isaac's son, Jacob, and Jacob's son, Judah. So those messianic promises passed from a very broad seed of the woman moving down to a descendant of of Shem and then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. And God has fulfilled and kept every single one that he promised he would. Here's some promises that we're familiar with. I'm sure, I'm sure everyone here can quote Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. Uh, We're familiar with Genesis 28, 13 through 15. We looked at Um, Genesis 49.10 last time, and then Ephesians 2.12. But let's just take a look here. Um, Genesis uh, chapter 28. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east to the north and to the south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land where I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken of to you. That's when God was meeting with Jacob. You'll remember Jacob had had fled. Uh, He had had usurped the, uh, the birthright and cheated his brother out of it, and his brother was really angry, so so he left to go back to his uh, his mother's family, to Laban's country, and you'll remember they slept, 
And as he slept, he had that amazing dream of the stairway that, that went up into heaven, the Jacob's ladder. And then God promised, reiterating the promise to Abraham and to Isaac, to him there in Genesis 28. We also have, and I love this from Ephesians 2, that at that time, and you'll remember the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 is speaking to the Gentiles. It was a Gentile church that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You know, it's interesting when we think about that, Ephesians 2 is making it very clear that to not be Jewish and to be a Gentile left you in a very, very precarious position. You had no promise. You had no hope. You had no covenants. You really didn't have any relationship with God at all. And I think I mentioned last time, to me, this has always felt like uh, when Bob Euchre was, was in the ads and he'd be way up in the, in the nosebleed section of the stadium, where he really wanted to be was down on the field. And God says, you who are far away, I've brought near. You who had nothing, I've drawn in. And uh, that's part of what Jesus came to fulfill. He came to, to clearly fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, ultimately David. But he also came to make that offer available to the Gentiles who really had no promises or hope at all. Genesis 17 tells us that this is an everlasting covenant. For example, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God, to be God to you and your descendants after you. So clearly another reason why Jesus had to come was to keep the covenant promise that God made. He was fulfilling that promise. And we see that going through verses 13 and 19 as well. And then it was confirmed to Jacob as a statute. We see this in um, First Chronicles and confirmed to Jacob for a statute to Israel for an everlasting covenant. And you know what? I think we can all understand we're promised everlasting life. John 3.16 promised us everlasting life. And if we were to ask how long is everlasting, it's without end. Well, the covenant also is an everlasting covenant, and it was without end because God promised it to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to the patriarchs, and to the forefathers. Jesus also came to deal with sin once and for all, and I think this is very significant. He came to deal with sin. We see here, put this up, okay. I think we all know Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I've given it to you on the altar to make a covering or an atonement for your soul for it is the blood that makes a covering or an atonement for the soul. The only way you could deal with sin according to the economy that God established with the law was blood. Without the shedding of blood, there was no remission. So Jesus came to deal with sin once for all by allowing his blood to be shed for our sin. And that brings us to Isaiah 53, which I think is very significant. And I'm going to take you through it in just a minute, but let's also remember there's, uh, this is also reiterated in the New Testament. I love this account from Matthew chapter 9. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying in a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, and you'll remember this, this is the one where, where they cut the hole in the roof and they let him down. 
they let him come down into the room and the room was packed and Jesus was standing there. And you can imagine this man as his, as his bed, as his mat comes down and lands at the feet of Jesus. And that is the event that we're looking at here. And Jesus said to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, the religious leaders began to debate among themselves. Who in the world is this man? What gives him the authority to forgive sin? Only God can forgive sin. Well, Jesus was clearly God and he knew their thoughts. And he said, is it easier to say, Son, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, really, to forgive sins. I say to you, your sins are forgiven, rise, take up your bed and walk, and you'll remember the man got up, rolled up his bed, and walked out of the midst of them. So there's a, clearly an account of what Jesus was looking to, uh, to do with, uh, by coming to earth was to address sin. He, he saw this man who was there really in a, in a very embarrassing position. His friends had, were concerned. They, they wanted to see him healed, but I don't think they fully understood what Jesus was going to do. We also have the passage in Romans chapter 6 that's mentioned here. It says he came to forgive sins. Then he said, oh, wait a minute. For the dead, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he now lives, he lives to God, Romans 6.10. And Hebrews 7.27, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And finally, I put down Hebrews 9.12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So we see that Jesus came to deal with sin, both in the Hebrew scriptures and in the new covenant. Now I'm going to show you Isaiah 53, and I want to give you a little outline here. Uh, I really love this. This is not original with me. This goes all the way back to years ago. We used to have a uh, Jewish evangelism workshop that was called Speak Tenderly to Jerusalem, and this is how that uh, booklet broke down Isaiah 53. Now, many of you are aware that the traditional position of the suffering servant today is that it's Israel. But it's interesting to note that prior to Jesus, this passage was considered messianic or one that was referring to the Messiah. So let's take a look. I'm going to put up the first uh, four verses here. You'll remember in Isaiah 53, it begins with, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? When you talk about the arm of the Lord, you're talking about his right hand, his hand of power. That's the name Benjamin means the son of my right hand. So the text is saying, Isaiah is saying, who has believed our report and who has seen the power, the arm, the strength of the Lord? Who has it been revealed to? Verse two, we see not only his challenge to believe, we see the birth of the Messiah. Verse two, for he, the Messiah, shall grow up before him, the Lord, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground, and he has no form or comeliness. The one, what, what they're referencing here is Jesus wasn't overly tall, and he wasn't, he wasn't overly handsome. He wasn't ugly by any stretch of the imagination, but he wasn't super tall. He wasn't super handsome. He was just an ordinary guy, and I think that's very significant because so many times people are drawn to something or someone that's very tall, someone that's very handsome, but the, the text is telling us he had no form or comeliness that when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. It wasn't 
anything about his physical appearance or his height, his stature, his appearance that drove people to seek after him. Verse three, his reception. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And verse four, his ministry, which takes us back to that Matthew 9 passage. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. I want to show you this. and I, I use this a lot because I like the illustration. I think we're all familiar with an iceberg. And I like this picture because this really is very reminiscent of how icebergs work. The majority of the iceberg is below the surface. And you'll notice that's exactly how this is set up, while only about one third or less is above the surface. In fact, if you remember hearing about the Titanic, the Titanic missed the top of the iceberg, but it was the part of the iceberg that was under water that the ship struck and it ripped out the uh, the, 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 the bottom of the ship and the ship ultimately sunk. Now, if you remember the account that I just read in Matthew chapter nine that we were talking about, Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. Come on, you can, you can, you can open. Why are you not moving? Oh, come on. I don't like it when my PowerPoint still function the way they're supposed to. It was advancing so well, and now it's frozen somehow. Any suggestions? What I do? Should I restart it? You can try that. Um, yeah, you might okay. just try that. Just Let me sure. try that. We'll restart it. Okay, thank you for that. I'm not used to. <laughs> it's not working. No worries. Let's try that. There it is. Okay. okay, there we go. You're set. So, thank you. If you could understand when Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven, can I tell you that the, the, the problem that we face in humanity is really the physical manifestation of sin is what's visible. So, for example, cancer, heart attacks, uh, depression, suicide, murder, crime, all of that drug addiction, that's all the physical manifestation of sin. But mankind's biggest problem is what we don't see below, and that's the sin problem. Jesus said, look, is it easier to, to heal or forgive? So he basically dealt with the physical to show that he had power over our biggest problem. So he said, son, your sins are forgiven, but I also want you to know that I have power to deal with that sin. So I'm going to say, rise up, take up your bed and walk. So he came to, to show his power over humanity's biggest problem, which is the sin problem by healing. And that's why it says in the text that he was acquainted with bitterest grief. And it says that we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. He's rejected a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He came to deal with our biggest problem, which was sin, which is separation from God. The fact that nothing that we do is right. That manifests itself as sickness and disease and health. It's not your sin being acted on, and that's why we get cancer or sick. It's just the right result of having a sin nature. So Jesus came to, to deal with our biggest problem by healing that which was uh, available to be seen by all to show his power over ultimately the biggest problem we face. 
And I just think that's kind of a neat way to look at it. As we move on, we see those first four verses. Then we move on to verses five and six, the suffering of the Messiah and its purpose. And I think we could all quote this. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, I don't know whether you've thought about this, but the fact that the Lord laid on him our sin, both the Jewish people and the, the Gentiles, that's a very significant concept because what that's called is imputation. God imputes our wrong to Jesus and imputes his innocence and righteousness and holiness to us so that when God looks at us, he sees Tom Simcox forgiven by God's grace. He sees each one of you as forgiven by God's grace because our sin was imputed to the Messiah and his righteousness was imputed to us. If you ever wonder how Paul could understand that, you look at the book of Philemon, and Philemon is an amazing short little letter where Paul writes about the, 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 the fact that this runaway slave named Onesimus, who was really hurtful to his, to his master, basically ran away and, and ended up meeting Paul and got saved. And Paul says, I'm now sending him back to you because he who was supposed to be profitable had become unprofitable. And he clearly uses the concept of imputation in his letter to Philemon because he said, if Onesimus owes you anything, you put that on my account and you treat me, the apostle Paul, as if I was the runaway slave and you treat the runaway slave as if he was the apostle Paul. That's where imputation applies in the New Testament, the apostle Paul understanding it from the Hebrew scriptures. So I thought that's really interesting when I look at this because we're not done and we're only halfway through. And really what, what Paul learned from the scriptures is what he taught as we go through books like Romans and, the, and Ephesians and Philippians. Verse seven, we have the trial of the Messiah. It says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. I'm sure that in a group our size, we have some that have witnessed and been around sheep. A number of years ago, I was at a, on a ministry and I was at a place where they were shearing sheep. And when we were done lunch, the, uh, the host couple asked if I'd like to, to see the sheep being shorn, which I was very excited to be able to do. The interesting thing about that whole event was while the little sheep was being shorn, it was bleeding. There was constant little buying, little bleeding. It's almost like the little, the lamb was saying, I'm here, I'm here. Just don't hurt the lamb, don't hurt the lamb. And I'll tell you, the shearers were just taking such exquisite care of that, uh, that little sheep that even one point, the little lamb got nicked and they put some, some lotion on his skin to help him to, uh, to feel better and to, uh, to not get an infection. But what was interesting was people tell me that Jesus can't be the Messiah because he spoke during his, those trials. He, he spoke to, to Pilate. He spoke and he said, remember Pilate said, are you a king? And he said, thou sayest it, but my kingdom is not of this world. And Jesus even mentioned that angels could come. Nothing that Jesus said 
could be used to get him out of the situation he was in. Jesus was silent before his accusers, the Jewish people, the, the Romans. Jesus did nothing to try to escape that trial or to get away from the cross because that was the reason that he came. So it's interesting that even the text understood that sheep, as I witnessed it, can bleat while they're being shorn, but they do nothing to try to stop the situation or to, to get away, at least not the ones that I saw. As we continue to move on here, we see the death of the Messiah, verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. You know, when we think about it, Jesus clearly came. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. He was born to die. And Isaiah 53 continues that reality by pointing it out in the text. Verse 9, we have the burial of the Messiah. I'm going to put these all up so that we don't run a risk of the screen freezing. 9, we're looking at his burial. They made his grave with the wicked, but the rich at his death. Jesus died a death that was reserved for the most violent people that Rome had. It would be like basically taking a terrorist and putting them to death. That's exactly how they used it. But it, after he died this terribly awful death that was reserved for the worst of the worst, yet he made his grave with the wicked because you'll remember that he was laid in a tomb. Generally, people that were crucified ended up in potter's fields. That's where they ended up. But Jesus was claimed, his body was prepared, and he was given a proper burial as he was laid in the tomb of uh, Joseph of Arimathea. And you'll remember Nicodemus was involved in that as well. <clears throat> so we see that uh, the text again is correct as it's referencing Jesus the Messiah. It talks about his, he, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Jesus didn't do anything to deserve to die, and that's exactly what the text is pointing out. We see his resurrection in verse 10. Now, notice it said in verse 9 that he was cut off from the land of the living, or verse, yeah, verse 8, he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was, he was stricken. Well, notice verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and I love to call attention to this when I'm sharing this with Jewish people. Jewish people have been blamed and, and called Christ killers for, for centuries, but it says in the text, if we read the Bible and let the words speak as they are written, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This was God's plan. This is what God intended before the foundation of the world. That's why Revelation tells us that Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before that very foundation of the world. God knew exactly what he was going to do and how it was going to unfold. So to blame the Jewish people is really an error. If you want to blame somebody, I blame myself because it was me. I'm the one that, uh, that put him there because he came for our sin. He came for the sin of the Jewish people, yes, but he also came for our sin. So I want to put the blame on somebody, blame it on me. But the bottom line is it really pleased the Lord to bruise him. And it says, and he, and uh, let me get to the verse, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, look at this. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
generally people that are dead do not see their descendants. My, uh, my father died when I was about four years old. He went fishing up in an area not far from where I live now called Washington's Crossing, Pennsylvania. And uh, he, I was supposed to go with him, but for some reason, the Lord had me concoct a bronchitis that night, and I was not able to go because my dad had a divine appointment with God. Apparently, from what we understand, the, uh, the boat fell over. It was March, uh, very cold, icy, snowy water. Uh, his hip waders filled up, and he probably died of hypothermia. And it took a month before his body was actually recovered. He has never seen his grandchildren. He never saw anything ever again that I know of because I don't believe that he was a believer in Jesus. Yet the one who was put to death, who was buried, it says he shall see his seed. He, he is seeing his descendants. And here we are. As we're gathered here, the Lord knows every one of us and he sees us and he interacts with us on a regular basis which is really wonderful. So that's the fact that he's alive. We serve a risen, living, resurrected Savior. And Isaiah 53 has pointed that out in complete accuracy. We go to verse 11. We call this the personal invitation of Messiah. Take a look. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Now, you ever heard the word propitiation? He's our propitiation, not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation literally means satisfaction. So notice in the text, it says here that he shall see the travail of his soul. God will see it and God will be satisfied. What that means is our debt has been paid. We sinned and, and Jesus took our punishment and the debt has been paid. So Jesus' death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection satisfied the debt that we had with God. He goes on here, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Now, I'm telling you, I feel like I'm reading Romans. We've got imputation, we've got propitiation, and now we've got justification. And so many times I know when, I, when I'm looking at this at, uh, with students in, in Bible college, They'll come out with the justification means just as if I'd never sinned. Can I be honest with you? It's actually better than that. It's like walking in dead to rights guilty, and, and you walk in and you're dead to rights guilty. You are, you're dead. You, you're, you're, you got it. The punishment is yours, but we walk out totally exonerated, not guilty, because Jesus paid it all. And that's an amazing reality. Not only is our sin debt satisfied with God, but we are viewed as totally not guilty. And then verse 12, the second coming, therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Notice here it says, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Jesus is coming back. He is going to reign as king of kings and lord of lords, probably from Jerusalem, Israel. And we'll see next week that he will be a priest on a throne. The scripture is clear about this. He's going to sit on the throne of his father, David, and he will rule the world. And we're going to see as we move along in Zechariah 14, if people don't come and worship him, 
they're not going to fare very well in that kingdom age because Jesus will be worthy of their worship. So Isaiah 53 is a pretty powerful, pretty powerful passage. And I agree with Steve. I have been sharing Isaiah 53 with unsafe people since 1980. And if this were a Jeopardy question or if this were a question on Family Feud, I would have to say that the top answer is whenever a Jewish person hears it, they tell me how in the world would Isaiah know Jesus. It's that clear. And it's interesting that a few years ago, Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerson, as he had passed away, his followers began applying Isaiah 53 to him saying that when he had had a stroke before he died, that he was bearing in his body the physical sin of his followers. So it's interesting that uh, you can you can see that there's some movement to change this, that it's not this the people of Israel. Because if you look at the words, it doesn't fit. Israel was wounded for Israel's transgressions. It, it just doesn't fit. It, the only thing that fits is that it's talking about the suffering servant who would be that Messiah. Now, another passage that, uh, that I really like here, and this one comes from the, uh, the Torah, is in Deuteronomy 18. We call this the prophet like unto Moses. Notice in the text, I'm reading uh, Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from your midst. From your brother and him you shall hear. According to all that you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see his, this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brethren, and he will put my words, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Now, I'm sure you're, you're familiar, but back in the New Testament, in the book of John, remember when John came on the scene? What did they ask him? You remember in John chapter one, the religious leaders came, they're following him. And they said uh, that John bore witness of him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me for he was before me. Well, you're going to remember when the religious leaders came, they asked him who he was. They said to you, are you the Christ? He said, no. And they said, well, what then? Are you Elijah the prophet? Remember, the Jewish people were told in the book of Malachi to look for Elijah the prophet. And he says, no, I'm not. Finally, they asked, are you that prophet? The only other person they know that they were told to look for was Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19, the one that they called that prophet who was like unto Moses. And he said, no. Well, then the religious leaders say, who in the world are you? If you're not the Messiah, if you're, if you're not Elijah the prophet, which we're expecting a Messiah. We are clearly expecting someone who's going to come before him, and, and he's identified as Elijah. And Moses told us that someone who was like him, that prophet, was supposed to come. If you're not any of them, who in the world are you? And if you remember, that's when he says that he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, because clearly Jesus identified John that if the people had accepted Jesus 
they would have accepted that John came in the power of Elijah. But because of that failure, the, the Jewish people stumbled and fell at Jesus, and, and they rejected uh, John's ministry. Basically, from what I understand of the text, we're going to go through this all over again. Someone is going to come either Elijah or like Elijah, and they're going to come in that kind of power, and they're going to come with that kind of authority to point the people back to the, uh, the reality of the Messiah. Some people have even speculated that the two witnesses that are mentioned in Revelation could be Moses and Elijah. We don't know. I know in the book Left Behind, that's exactly what uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins did. And, and I understood why, because many people wonder, is this, could these two be a representative of the law and the prophets, uh, kind of pointing back to uh, the fact that uh, Jesus is going to come. And it's interesting, Moses and Elijah met Jesus when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. And I've even had some speculate, now, let, let, I don't want to get anybody upset or angry, but that the two that appeared as Jesus was ascending to heaven, wouldn't it be interesting if that was Moses and Elijah, they witnessed him as he was in, in Jerusalem, as he was in the kingdom, uh, as he was in Israel, there on the Mount of Olives, a little mini kingdom, a little picture of the kingdom risen, Old Testament saints, glorified Jesus and human beings. They could be the two possibly that appeared and said, this same Jesus shall come again in like manner. And then they appear in the book of Revelation during the tribulation period, in the midst of that period, part first half, part second half, where their ministry is uh, to, to explain and teach and proclaim who Jesus is and what he did. We'll never know this side of glory, but it's kind of interesting to speculate when you think about what we already know and who appeared on that Mount of Transfiguration with the disciples. And then so many people really look at the two witnesses in Revelation and see that as possibly being Moses and Elijah. Another prophecy about his birth is Isaiah 7:14, And so I put some things up on this as well that we can look at. The Messiah's virgin birth. There are two Hebrew words that are translated virgin. The first word is betula, and it's used over 60 times in scripture. The second word is only used seven times, and that's the Hebrew word alma. Now, if you look at the text that we have here, uh, the different ones that are up there, they use those words. Rabbis teach that betula always means unequivocal virgin. And I want you to look at Let's take a look at Genesis 24, 16, and compare it with 24, 43. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to turn back to Genesis 24, and verse 16, and then we're going to look at verse 43. Genesis 24. I want to show you this, and I'm doing this for a reason, because I want you to see the word and how it's used. So we're going to look at Genesis 24, 16, which uses the word betula, and then we're going to use 24, 43, which uses Alma, and see if you see anything that is worth noting. So here we are, Genesis 24, I am in verse 16. Now, verse 16, and this is the account where um, the servant of Abraham is sent to find a bride for his son Isaac. So we're looking at verse 16, which says, now the young woman, that's the, uh, that's the Hebrew word, 
that's there, and it's the word nara, was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. And that's the word betula. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. So the word young woman there, which is how they traditionally translate the word betula in, in, uh, when they're referring to a virgin, uh, is the word nara there, but the word betula is translated virgin in, in our Bible. Now skip over to verse 43, same account, but I want you to look at the, the way it's worded here. Let's pick up in 42 to get the flow. And this day I came to the well and I said, oh Lord God of my master Abraham, if you will now prosper the way in which I go, behold, verse 43, I stand by the well of water. It shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water and I say to her, please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. Now the word virgin there is the word Alma. Now, I wish that we could talk out loud about this, but do you understand and see the difference? Verse 16 uses Betula, and it puts the helping phrase on, no man had known her, which clearly clarifies that she was a virgin. But when we come to verse 43, he uses the word Alma, and it doesn't give any helping phrase whatsoever. So if I could suggest to you Alma is a virgin already contracted or betrothed to be in marriage. That would be where Mary was when she was betrothed to Joseph. And that's why in, in Matthew chapter one, he really was confused and he thought to put her away quietly because he felt that she had not been faithful to him. While Betula is better used as a non-sexually active but could be previously woman. Go to the book of Joel, Joel chapter one and verse eight. Let me get to Joel. Joel chapter one, verse eight, where it says, lament like a virgin, a batula, girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. Now, clearly the accountant Joel, it says she's a virgin, but she previously had a husband in her youth. So we have to assume that she is a widow at this point. She was once sexually active or married, but now she's not, that has been denied. And the word Betula clearly fits there. So you could go through all these passages that are here. I don't wanna prolong this forever, but I want you to have them to look at. But as I look at the text, Genesis 24, 16, clearly uses the word Betula with the helping phrase, where Genesis 24, 43 uses Alma with no helping phrase. And when you throw in that Joel 1, 8, that she is a Betula who is mourning for the husband of her youth, clearly we have something that I think we can build our theology on. It's also interesting to note, class, when Isaiah 7, 14, which we're going to look at right now, was translated by the Septuagint scholars, the 72 Jewish scholars, when they came to the word Alma in Isaiah 7, 14, they chose the Greek word Parthenos, which was an unequivocal virgin. So the text Isaiah 7, 14 says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, the Alma shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
going on, curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. I don't know whether you've ever looked at the account of Isaiah 7, but apparently if you look at the text and you go over the account, and I'll never call these stories, these are not stories, these are actual events that happened. You'll remember that there was a king named Ahaz, who was the son of Jotham and the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that the Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, were going to go up to Jerusalem to make war against him. So this, uh, the, the king of the house of Judah was about to be attacked by Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel. They were going to go up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but they could not prevail against it. So it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. What a beautiful, picturesque way of saying they were scared. They were scared. They were concerned. They were about to be attacked, and they were very concerned about that. And then it says that um, the Lord says to Isaiah, go now and meet Ahaz, you and Yeshua, Yeshuv, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. If you're about to be attacked in those days, you wanted to make sure that water was still going to continue to flow into the city. So that's why Ahaz was there. He was checking out the water. God tells Isaiah to take his little son, Yeshua, Yeshua, who was also part of this whole event as part of a picture message that God was sending to Ahaz. And he says, ask of me a sign. Ask me a sign of the heavens above or the earth beneath that this attack will fail. And the text tells us that Ahaz had already decided to go in a different direction because Ahaz was a godless king. He didn't love the Lord as his father David had. And he says, I will not tempt, nor will I test the Lord my God. Sounds good on the surface, but it wasn't. Because that's when Isaiah utters this prophecy. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? In other words, you drive me nuts, you're going to drive God nuts also. Behold, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The Isaiah 7:14 passage was meant to be a sign to the whole house of David and ultimately to Israel that God was not going to, A, allow this attack to happen, but that God was also going to send one who would be identified as God with us, Emmanuel. Probably never called that name, but if you understand who Jesus was while he was here, he was God physically tabernacling with his people. This is a very difficult passage to share with Jewish people. I've, I've dealt with it on occasion. Uh, there's a near view there's a view that's immediate before these two kings could do anything. God said they'll be gone. But there's also a long-range view that is given to the whole house of David and to Israel that this, um, that this promised Emmanuel was going to come. And we see that even as we get to the New Testament. My advice is it's here. It's a great prophecy. It's, it's real. It's genuine. But it's probably not where I go first because it's a very difficult concept for Jewish people to, uh, to interact with. And it can be a little hard to teach and explain. Okay, we've been through Isaiah 7, 14. We have Isaiah 11, 
We see again Isaiah 53 dealing with his birth and his life, 1 through 7. Micah 5, 2. Let's take a look at Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Are you still on that? Pardon me? Micah 5, 2. And Micah 5, 2 is important because it gives the location of the birth of the Messiah. And if you remember, this is what came into, uh, this came into focus when the Magi came. In Micah 5, 2, we read, but, okay, the virgin, but thou Bethlehem of Ephrathah, though thou be little among the tribes of Judah, yet shall he come forth unto me to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from days of old, from timeless eternity. If you remember when the Magi came, they came to Jerusalem. The star led them. They come into the royal palace and they say, where is he that's been born king of the Jews? They had to go back and check because they didn't remember. And it says, well, he would be born in Bethlehem. And that's why he was sent on ahead to, they were sent on. And you'll remember that Herod said, go find the baby, come back and tell me where he is, that I may come and worship him too, which really translated was, I want to go kill him because there's no king in Israel but me. But Bike 5.2 says Bethlehem of Ephrata. It's an address. It's a location. There was a Bethlehem in North Israel, but this was Bethlehem in the South, the city of David. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. You'll never find any listing of tribal land holdings that includes Bethlehem because it's just too small. Some of us come from towns that are that way. They're too small to make the map. That's exactly what happened here. Yet, from this little town, God says, one shall come to me to be ruler in Israel, and I love this, whose goings forth have been from of old. What's that literally mean? His goings forth are his activities. Jesus has been involved since the creation of the world, because Colossians tells us without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the creator. I believe what he said is true. No one has ever seen the father at any time. But when you go through the Hebrew scriptures and you see where people indicated that they saw God, I believe they were seeing Jesus because Jesus tells us no one has seen the father at any time. So who had Moses in the cleft of the rock? Probably Jesus. Who passed by? Probably Jesus. Who was the angel of the Lord that appeared to Abraham, to, to, uh, his, his, to Hagar? Who was the angel of the Lord that appeared to, in, in the book of Judges, to Samson's parents, the Manoahs? Who was the angel of the Lord that stood before Joshua and said, I am the captain of the hosts of heaven? Those were probably all pre-manger of Bethlehem, pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus whose goings forth were from of old, from days of timeless eternity. You know, it's interesting. The Bible also tells us in John that Jesus was the word. And I think it's very significant, class, to understand that whenever the angel of the Lord or any of these pre-incarnate appearances appeared, they brought the word of God to the people or persons that they were speaking to because the word of God hadn't been recorded yet. So when Hagar flees into the wilderness and the angel of the Lord tells her, what her son is going to be like, the angel of the Lord is revealing God's will and God's word to Hagar. The angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham, take your son, your only son, 
the one that you love. We know he had two sons. We already knew that Ishmael was born. But God says, take your son, your only son, the one that you love. We know from the text that Abraham clearly loved Ishmael as well. But God understood the relationship that he was going to have with Isaac. And God says, take your son and go now to the land of Moriah, and you will offer him there to me on a mountain that I will show you. <clears throat> and if you remember, he goes and they journey, and then you'll remember the amazing conversation that happened between Abraham and his son. And his son said, Father, uh, behold, we have the, 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 the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb? And you'll remember that Abraham said, God will see to the lamb himself, my son. And then they journey on a little further, and I can't help but imagine that Abraham must have been sobbing as he bound his son, as he built the altar, as he laid it in perfect order, doing everything the way that the Lord wanted him to, especially when you realize before he went, he said to his servants, stay here, I and the lad will go worship, and we will come again unto you. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham fully expected his son to rise again. So clearly, Abraham trusted and believed in God. And you'll remember what happened. The angel of the Lord is identified as Jehovah Jireh in that text because it says, the angel of the Lord said, Abraham, Abraham, don't harm your son. I see now that you fear God because you have not withheld your only son from me. And you'll remember there was a ram caught in the thicket. The ram took the place of the son, substitutionary atonement. And the Lord said that the name of the Lord was called there Jehovah Jireh. The Lord God provides. El Roi was the name that was used with Hagar. He was the God who sees. These are names of God that are associated with pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus because people were seeing the ministry of Jesus because he was the word, always the word. He was the word in the beginning, and he was the word that became flesh, and he's still the word today. And it's interesting when he smites the enemies of Israel as he returns towards the end of Revelation, it says there's a sword that goes forth out of his mouth. Clearly, he's going to smite the enemies of God by speaking, and every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Jesus would be the word of God, because Jesus is God. So it's very interesting when we look at these accounts, and we see exactly what's going on when we put them together. Zechariah 9.9 is another one that we're familiar with. This is the one that will be talked about fairly recently as we get nearer to um, Palm Sunday and uh, Resurrection Day. Zechariah 9.9 talks about the one who would come on that, uh, in that entry to Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we remember that that was literally fulfilled as Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem. And you'll remember that's where they took the palm branches and they took off their coats and they laid them in the road. And they're saying, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna literally means save now. And you'll remember the religious leaders. What did they say? You got to stop the people from saying this. Jesus said, if they didn't cry out the very rocks of the ground would because they knew the hour of their visitation. Maybe I'm going out on a limb here, but I look at Zechariah 9.9 as one of the pinnacles in the Hebrew scriptures, pointing to that major event of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, looking to see as he's been preaching, as his disciples have been preaching, repent, 
The kingdom of God is at hand. He came to see if they were ready to repent and accept the kingdom, but they weren't. And so the kingdom was put on hold and we're still waiting for it today. So it's interesting to look at what these passages say and, and what, they, uh, what they mean today. Uh, there's a spelling there. His death and burial. Psalm 22, one of the most amazing psalms in the scriptures. Uh, much of it is clearly identifiable at Jesus' crucifixion. Let me just turn there and take you through some of the verses together. Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1, it starts out with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? Now, we're here in New Testament Christians. We should remember that those were words that Jesus spoke when he was on the cross. My God, oh my God, I cry in the daytime and you do not hear. And the night season and am not silent. But you are holy who inhabit the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. Take that back to Isaiah 53. All those who see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You'll remember that was said about Jesus as the religious leaders were there mocking him and telling him, if you would just come off the cross and come down, we'll believe. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust when I was on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths as a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. This clearly seems and sounds like crucifixion. My heart is like wax and it's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For, for dogs have surrounded me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now, I'll tell you, when you look at that, you will get goosebumps. But you have to understand the Hebrew Bible says has to do with how they vow pointed it. Because this is used so many times to reference Jesus, they wanted to take that ability away. So the scholars have vow pointed. They pierced my hands and feet to a new word. It just had to do with how they, they put the vows. And it now says in the Hebrew Bible, like a lion at my hands and feet. But even without that, it goes on. It says, verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. Look at 18. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. Oh, my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. This psalm, even with that verse being translated differently, clearly, we can't help but see, I hope you, you agree, can't help but see, this is talking about and being applied to the crucifixion when Jesus endured that on that, uh, that, that day when he was suspended between heaven and earth. And he became sin for us. 
Many of the words he spoke, even what they did, they, they shot out the lip, they mocked him, they encouraged him to come down and they believed. They gambled for his clothes. All of that fits. Even with the way that it's described here, my bones are out of joint. My, my tongue is cleaving to my mouth. My, my heart is like wax. You clearly look at that. You can't help but see that uh, this, is, this is clearly a messianic prophecy. We also have Daniel 9.26. And Daniel 9.26, generally part of the 70 weeks passage, but clearly sets the stage for the fact that Jesus would die. Daniel 9.26, let me get there. The verse that I'm sure you're all familiar with. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Now, if I'm doing the Jerusalem road, which I do many times with my Jewish friends when I'm sharing with them, I'll go from Isaiah 53, where he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people. And I'll go right from there to Daniel 9.26. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself or your transgressions. Transformation may say, shall have nothing. Both are true. And the people, Gentiles, of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. What's significant here is not only that he would die, but when he would die, he would die before the destruction of Jerusalem. That destruction of Jerusalem and the temple happened in A.D. 70. Every Jewish person knows it. There were two temples. The first was destroyed in 586 by Nebuchadnezzar. The second was destroyed by Titus Vespasian and the Roman legions in AD 70. In fact, that's even right after that when the, the Jewish people were denied access to Jerusalem for a while and they had to reform in the city of Yavne. And there they put together their spiritual um, Sanhedrin. But clearly, he's going to die, and it tells when he would die, before the destruction of Jerusalem and before the destruction of the temple, which happened in AD 70. Class, only one person who was claiming to be Messiah fits that prophecy. Every false Messiah, all the way down to Schneerson, David Alroy, Shabtai V, every one of the false Messiahs did not fit the prophecy. Clearly, the text is very clear in pointing out the identity of the one who would be cut off from the land of the living and the time that it would happen. Thank you for listening to our FOI Equip podcast. Again, I want to remind you to go to foiequip.org and sign up to be on our mailing list. We'd love to see you at one of our free live online FOI Equip classes. Also, be sure to listen to our other podcasts like the Jew and Gentile podcast hosted by yours truly and Steve Herzig. Also, the Gesher podcast hosted by Ty Perry. You can find out more ways to get involved with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry by visiting foiequip.org. FOI Equip is an outreach of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. We are a worldwide evangelical ministry proclaiming biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while bringing physical and spiritual comfort to the Jewish people. Hey, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon.